Hi, good morning. You're listening to X-Ray in the Morning, X-Ray FM at KXRY Portland and at 107.1 and 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. I am Belinda Carroll, and I am so excited to be here this morning because it is International Women's Day. Um, And uh, we're going to have a very special edition of X-Ray in the morning this morning. News with Femmes. We're X-Ray FM. Get it? FM? Okay. Uh, You can text me at (laughs) 971-220-5971. Nine. That's nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. If you would like to uh, criticize my pun, you can always uh, leave your name, and then we will give you a shout out, or we will simply make up a name for you. Um, and I may just make up a name for you anyway. I'm very excited to uh, have our uh, co-host today. Uh, we've got a bevy of fine people hanging out with us today. We've got Kira Lindbergh, who I was just on with last week. And hey, we have, hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm on like no sleep day. and uh, I'm feeling pretty punchy. Yeah, yeah apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Uh, and then we also have Carly Quornos. Quadros. Quadros. I mean, you know, I told you I was going to make up names. <laughs> Carly Quadros, who's a producer here at uh, X-Ray. Um, are you on the line, too? Yeah. Hi. Yeah. So happy to be here. I'm so stoked for today's show and for all the interviews and discussions that are going to come on X-Ray after this. It's going to be a really, really exciting day. Yeah. And then Sam's joining us, too, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. super exciting. She's in the, in the production booth right now. <laughs> and uh, in honor of uh, International Women's Day... Uh, Powell's has a new list of books uh, by and about women, which is uh, which is pretty cool. So head down to Powell's or get online and check that list out. Yeah, I was looking at that and I was wondering, you two, do you have any favorite female authors, especially local authors? I have so I have a ton of favorite female authors. <laughs> Give us some. Yeah, for sure. Uh one of my favorite books that I've read in the last year is called The Heavens. It's by author Sandra Newman. I did not look up where she's from. Sorry, I don't think she's local. But uh, man, that's such a good book. We read it. <laughs> I'm in a book club with my mom oh. and and like, <laughs> and like 15 other women um, who are all my mom's age. Uh, they all did not like this book, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite, The, the Heavens by Sandra Newman. It's about a woman who's like unstuck in time. And every time she goes to sleep, she dreams. And when she wakes up, uh, reality has changed based on what she did in her dream. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. And I looked it up. Sandra Newman, uh, she wrote it. uh, She was grieving the loss of her husband, who I think passed away. And she kept having these experiences where, like, she would wake up and, like, not remember what happened and have to be, like, re-explained reality. And I just, I thought it was such a beautiful, like, she wrote it as this catharsis. Um, I just thought it was, it's, it's a beautiful book, The Heavens by Sandra Newman. Oh, I'll have to read that. I'm a huge uh, dreamer. I remember my dreams. I'm, I'm odd that way. Uh, and so I'd be very interested in that. That would be very strange if I had dreams and then it changed my reality. Yes. <laughs> I mean. very upset. The worst part is that everyone just treats her like she's crazy. So she, she wakes up and remembers like what happened, what was normal the day before. And she's like, oh, I'm going to go see my parents. And, you know, they're like, they have to be like, um, you're crazy. Your parents passed away. Like, it's, it's such a good book. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. And, uh, and uh, also just kind of uh, 
I think the thing that happens with grief, really, you know, where you yes. where you wake up in that first moment where you wake up, you go, oh, OK, that's great. And then you go, oh, no, this is what's really going on. Right. Which is kind right. of all of our yes. realities for the last year. <laughs> poignant moment. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about uh, Jean Owl. Do you know who that is? She wrote the Clan no. of the Cave Bear th- series. If uh, if she's listening, she's actually uh, from the coast and from uh, Portland. I believe she lives in Portland now. Um, but she had a book called Clan of the Cave Bear that came out, I don't know, like oh mid 80s. I remember reading that in like junior high school. Yes. And so I do, too. And so she had she had like four books or five books. Oh, it's, I think it's five books. And then the sixth book has not materialized yet. And so it's been it's been there are people that are that are very big fans of Clan of the Cave Bear have been waiting on that sixth book for like 20 years. And oh so, gosh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and the first one was uh, the, fir- the all the books are great. But like the fir- the first one was fantastic because she did like a ton because it's about uh, uh, Cro-Magnon that goes to live with Neanderthals through a uh, through a series of unfortunate incidents uh, and and grows up within them and not recognizing uh, her real culture and like whatever so uh so but she did a lot of research into uh Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals and how that uh how everything um transpired uh, in that time and so uh and so it was a big it was a big sensation when it came out so if you're listening Jean we're waiting for that sixth book Um, (laughs) (laughs) on pins and needles that is such a wild premise for a book. <laughs> it is, yeah. And so it follows this this uh, uh, girl named Ayla through her life, and so it's it's really it's really interesting. But it's uh, but it's also kind of romance novelly. It, it's 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 a very fascinating book. But um, but it's so funny to me how many people read that book in junior high. Yeah, I don't know why. It was all my friends were reading it because we were nerds, and that was what we did with our time was to read like 600-page books. <laughs> they were like, is but it 800 yeah, pages? We're doing it. Deal. And it was really heavy. Like, I mean, the, the, the yeah, anyway, so the, the book was really, <laughs> like, it was extremely long and very dense, and there was yeah. a lot of information in the book, and but yet at the same time, like, all of these children were reading it. So good job for you. I feel like Portland authors are so good at walking the fine line between reality and just complete absurdity, like the weirdness of speculative fiction or just disorienting readers with the weirdness of everyday life. Like when I was thinking (laughs) about local authors that I love, I thought about Catherine Dunn, who's just an icon. Um, she like oh, wrote a boxing yeah. call in Portland for a long time. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, she's a genius, and Geek Love totally changed yes. me when I first read it. Mm-hmm. That's Geek Love, as in a circus freak, um, the the person that tears apart live chickens, and it's a story about a family of intentional circus freaks, and just like um, the strange intensities of love, um, especially when you're on the fringes of society. It's amazing. Yeah, uh, that that book is so incredible. I, there's just no way to be the same person when you're done reading that book that you were before you started reading mm-hmm. it. I think it took her something like 10 years to actually write it, too. It's oh she only gosh. wrote three books and the first two she I wrote when she was that. very, With very young to the craft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, can. Uh, I also love Diane Ackerman. You won't be surprised to find out. Uh, she writes <laughs> a lot of uh, science nonfiction. Um, her her work is just so beautiful. She's a, a poet 
I, I read last, a couple of years ago, I read The Zookeeper's Wife, which I had put off reading for a long time because the title made it sound like something that housewives read. And I was like, I'm, I'm not interested in like a romance novel, but it is such a beautiful account of um, a family in Poland who, I mean, it's a true story of a family who owns a zoo. And when the Nazis come into power, they, because they're obsessed with um, uh, breeding and genetics, they end up killing or stealing a lot of their animals and they have all this room. And then um, they end up housing people who are trying to escape from the Holocaust. It was, it's such a beautiful and intense book that I would read a couple chapters and then I would have to put it down for like three weeks because it was like so emotionally intense. Um, But yeah, she's beautiful. Also, have have you guys listened, um, listened, have you read uh, uh, Mindy Natifi's poetry? She's a a local poet as well. Her poetry is beautiful. I have not. I haven't either. She's great. I highly recommend getting the book Open Your Mouth Like a Bell. Mindy Natifi, her her poetry. Oh, I think I've heard that. Yeah, she's a big deal in Portland. Um, yeah, her poetry is absolutely beautiful. I, I I read Open Your Mouth Like a Bell. I keep it by my bedside, and I just read random poems from it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I miss poetry readings all of a sudden. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I never thought that in my life I would miss slam poetry, but right now I really do. I'm like, oh, I remember that. Oh, my that. gosh, right? Yeah, live poetry. I, yes, absolutely. I know. And you couldn't drag me to live poetry before, but now I would be like... <laughs> <laughs> like, live people doing something in a room in person with yes. crammed in there and it smells like BO and everyone's breathing on each other. I'll take it. <laughs> and everybody's all sweaty and then somebody, anyway. Um, <laughs> what else is happening? Sam, do you have any, uh, any favorite female authors? Uh, we'll have to ask her when she gets here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you guys want to jump into the news? Yeah, what's going on in the world? I mean, what isn't going on in the world? Uh, The U.S. Senate passed a covid relief bill on Saturday. Uh, Now that heads back to the U.S. House, which will vote on the amended bill as early as Tuesday. Uh, The Senate made significant changes to the package, including removing the provision to raise the federal minimum wage to $15. A $15 minimum wage was a key campaigning promise of Biden's. Lawmakers also reduced weekly unemployment payments from $400 to $300. The bill expands the child tax credit to $3,000 per child and $3,600 per child under six. Uh, Essentially, that means the guaranteed income for families with children. Uh, It also allows families to claim up to half of their child care related expenses on their taxes. All in all, eligible parents can receive up to $5,000 per child in a combination of direct payments and tax credits. Many Democrats are pushing to make the enhanced child credit permanent later this year. The Biden administration has claimed that this could cut child poverty in half. Uh, Even before the pandemic, Oregon was facing a shortage of affordable child care options. Uh, There are eight infants or toddlers in Oregon for every one daycare spot available. And they're also, I know, isn't that? Uh, And then there are also three preschool aged children for every one classroom or daycare spot. Uh, Publicly funded childcare is hugely important in Oregon. Uh, Nearly all of the countries that do have affordable preschool options only have it because of publicly funded programs. Um, Also, we just, uh, hired a preschool for all 
uh, director uh, in the That's Portland Public great. School. I know. I'm really excited about it because uh, I was a preschool kid, and uh, I fe- really feel like uh, preschool sets kids up well for uh, school, and that you know, poor kids really get a get a, a leg up, uh, and and it kind of levels the playing field a little bit. So I'm real excited about it. Mm-hmm. If I could talk a little personally about I was really interested in this uh, child tax exemption and like it sounds kind of dry when you think about tax exemptions and things like that Um, but okay so background on me is that I was raised by a single mother um, and I have I have an older sister who's four years older than me so when my mother was pregnant with me uh, my sister was four and my father passed away suddenly three months before I was born um and that was not something she was planning for. She was expecting to have two incomes when she uh, was raising her kids. And so that completely threw a wrench in her plans as a parent. And so these these kinds of government programs to support parents, especially single parents, are so essential, especially when kids are younger, especially when you're a working parent and you need someone to look after your kid while you're working to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Um So, like, this isn't just a dry issue kind of about tax exemptions. This is really about getting the resources that we need for working parents and especially single parents. Oh, no, I absolutely agree. It's it's uh, it's so important. I was I was a a Head Start kid. And so I went to Head Start at Sunnyside Elementary. um, And uh, within that, like, that's how I learned how to read really early. That's how I. how I I started to learn sign language when I was in Head Start like and so it really it really does help and my mom was a single mom and she worked she worked crazy she worked graveyards and then like slept for three hours in the afternoon while we were in school and then you know picked us up and so she had this insane schedule and if it hadn't been for us uh, me being able to be in Head Start um, she wouldn't have any kind of break and uh, and she wouldn't you know it would have been it wouldn't have been uh, feasible for her to to raise me, essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys bring up a really good point. And I think a lot of if people who don't have children or who have grown out of the age of, you know, being parents, I think it's easy to think about preschool for all as being this, like, academic movement. And you're right, it does start kids off with a really great foundation, you know, to, to succeed in school. But I think... One of the silver linings of this pandemic is that we now know that childcare is really, really important to keeping our society functioning, right? Like if we want people to go to work, I mean, yeah. how many people that have these really important uh, foundational jobs in our society are single mothers or, mm-hmm. you know, parents that both have to work like full-time jobs and don't have somebody to watch their child. So uh, it's, Preschool for all is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And bringing it back to this this tax credit that we were talking about, um, you know, I'm really glad to see this come up. It's, it's interesting to see. I, I'm always so fascinated by what gets rolled into a bill that goes through Congress, right? So, like, this is a COVID relief bill, but they also try to wrap in, like, the $15 minimum wage, which you could argue is COVID relief, but, you know, is, is also, like, a huge movement. Well. Um, there have been Democratic senators that have been pushing for this child tax credit to be permanent for a long time. Um, and it, I'm glad that it's, this subject is starting to get some spotlight shown on it. 
Um, there are 10 million plus children that have lived before, that lived below the poverty line in 2019. Um, and one of the biggest issues that we're seeing with school closures is that, you know, there are millions, millions of children in this country that qualify for either free or subsidized lunch through their schools and breakfast as well. And for a lot of kids, that's the only way they're getting a complete meal and not because their parents are terrible, but because, as you guys were just saying, their parents are working two jobs mm-hmm. or working crazy hours um, because they're not getting <laughs> because minimum wage still isn't fifteen dollars. Um, and you know, with school closed, I think in twenty twenty, only fifteen percent of those kids that qualified for free lunches actually got them because they weren't physically showing up to school. Um, so, you know, we have to acknowledge that, like. Free lunches are great, but they're not going to solve the problem. So what we need to do is put money back into the hands of these parents that I don't think anybody can really make the argument anymore that these are like lazy parents that aren't working enough to to support their children. These are people that have two, three jobs, are working 50, 60 hours a week, are taking three-hour naps in the middle of the day because, you know, they have to pick their kids up from school and they have to work and whatever. So these child tax credits of of $3,000 – per child are going to help put food on the table for those kids. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's worth it's worth noting that childcare often costs as much as your weekly paycheck. So oh, a, a, for a lot of moms, it's it's almost a wash to go to, to work because it's like it is. What it what is. am I supposed to do? I, I, I work all week to pay my child care, you know, and so we really oh. need that kind of support to be able to even feasibly have children and have children grow up in an environment that's nurturing to them where they can succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that you, you pointed out earlier that nearly all of the countries that have affordable preschool options only have it because of publicly funded programs. Um, if you know anybody who's a parent, I mean, my best friend is like a financial advisor and her husband is a, is a teacher and has been for 20 years. Like, they're, you know, they're a middle class family. And you're not kidding. It takes an entire one of their salaries to pay for daycare for their kids. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Like we have to have affordable daycare options to watch our kids if we want our society to continue to function. So um, yeah, preschool for all child tax credit. I'm really glad to see that these things are being pushed forward. Because I think Carly, you were the one that pointed out like this is a women's issue this is this comes back around to international women's day this is an issue for women exactly i think ultimately this this child tax credit um and the democrat push to make it permanent really begs the question for me what other parts of stimulus should we be making permanent oh good question (laughs) i mean i was thinking about this um, especially in relation to women's issues. And I was like, okay, unemployment expansion, worthwhile. Rental assistance, worthwhile. The ban on no-cause evictions, definitely worthwhile. More money for schools. I think so many things that are thought of as COVID relief are really responses to programs that were gutted in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. especially in yeah. the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. Um, things that like even Biden was maybe in favor of or indifferent to um, at the time. And I feel like now during COVID, we have the opportunity to amend so many of those uh, 
those neglecting issues in the past mm -hmm. couple decades. Well, I feel like... Yeah, it's... Oh. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead Belinda. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like COVID really uh, exposed the cracks in our social system and in such a dramatic and immediate way that we had to... Uh, to address it otherwise you know we would have collapsed economically and so it's it's worth looking at in the long term to have some of these programs exist uh, permanently yeah it's another silver lining of this pandemic is, is it's forcing us to take a look and, and have empathy for each other and, you know, the, the old lie of like welfare queens and, you know, people who yeah. just aren't working hard enough to support their families, you know, that's that narrative is starting to crumble, which, you know, the pandemic has sucked, but that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get to a point where, and that, you know, it, that narrative, it's just, it's so strange to me because it's like, I know there are still people out there who believe in the idea that like, well, we're Americans and we shouldn't take handouts. It's our money. It's our tax money that we are giving back to ourselves in social programs. In, and the, oh, the reason we have taxes, people, is so <laughs> that we can organize the money and distribute it to people in ways that will do the most good. And one of those ways is child tax credits so you can feed your children and affordable preschool so that you have somewhere to put your child yeah. in a safe and reliable so that you can go to work and contribute to society. I mean, theoretically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. In my perfect world. I mean, uh, we're, we're working on it. We're getting there. All right. <laughs> right. If, if, you can, if the pandemic ends and you have a job, then you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Uh, in other news, uh, Oregon lawmakers have introduced a bill to ban the gay and trans panic defense. Uh, the panic defense is a legal argument that can be used in violent cases. Uh, it argues that a victim's sexual or gender identity can provoke a defendant into a panicked violence, including assault or murder. Uh, it has been used partially or even fully to acquit perpetrators of hate crimes against the members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, now, several Senate Democrats have introduced a SB 704, which would ban the LGBTQ panic defense from use in the Oregon courts. Uh, the LGBTQ panic defense has been banned in 12 states, uh, beginning with California in 2014. Washington state has passed its own ban last year. The Senate Judiciary Committee needs to approve the bill before it receives a floor vote. SB 704 has not faced any oppositions at its hearings, meaning that it will be very likely uh, the bill will pass before the legislative session ends, uh, which can't come soon enough. Like, are we still at the, the gay panic defense? You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But the, the first law banning it only passed in 2014. I was... I was in high school then, but I was like part of a group of people. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone <laughs> uh, that were that it's were helping to lobby pass this old. bill. Um, and I mean, it's it's a defense that's not used a lot, but the LGBT community still faces so so many hate crimes, so much assault, so much violence, especially against transgender people. And I feel like um, ultimately the underlying narratives 
that are implicit in the gay and trans panic defense are still there when we deal with these issues or when these assaults happen. Well, the thing is, is that so um, I was not in high school in 2014. And um, but uh, but for real, I came out uh, when I was in high school. And so I came out when I was a freshman in um, 1993, uh, 1992. And uh, when that was going on, there was uh, a bill called Measure 9 that was happening, uh, and some people may remember this, which is uh, the Oregon Citizens Alliance, which is a, a right-wing organization uh, headed by Lon Maybon, uh, put a uh, bill on the uh, on the ballot that would write into the Constitution that holidays, what they used as the word, uh, was on par uh, with several other uh uh, illegal things um, and that uh, and that teachers couldn't teach and there was there was like whole a whole bunch of stuff within that bill and that almost well, sorry, passed. When was this? This is 1992. So in ni- oh. and and there's a great documentary called Measure Nine that you can uh, that you can find at like the library. Shout out library. <laughs> um, and uh, and it, it it talks about it. But um, Kathleen Sadat, who's a who's a LGBTQ uh, activist here in Portland. Uh, was one of the instrumental people that really helped fight this. But there was a lot of LGBTQ violence at that time. And, uh, and there, it was a huge argument, like in, in just living rooms of, of this, of this, uh, this bill. And so there was actually three of them. There was, uh, it was Measure 8 uh, first, and that one passed. And then it was overturned by the Supreme Court. And then they came back with Measure 9, which was like a lighter version of it and then it was measure 13 and so measure 13 was an even lighter version of measure 9 um which uh in in fairness uh passed by less or didn't pass and it was more of a margin but measure 9 specifically uh only uh didn't pass by two points it was like 51 to 49 and so and so that's amazing like considering portland now um but so this gay panic defense uh you know was very justified back then like people would i mean it was it was uh, just in in conversation with people it was it was very you know they felt like that was a justified thing and uh and so just to see this uh come off the books is huge for me yeah absolutely i mean it's a huge demonstratively it's a huge deal um for this to be coming up but also i mean this it really looked that the gay panic defense does actually get used there was a not in oregon but in texas there was a, a famous case in 2014 which yes. was like not that long ago mm-hmm. um where a, a man went to the house of uh, he, he was invited to the house of daniel spencer to play music um and then the man stabbed spencer to death went home cleaned himself up and then turned himself in and the murderer, he was convicted of criminally negligent homicide instead of murder because the lawyer invoked the, the gay panic defense. Mm-hmm. Um, he only got six months in jail. Yeah, and yeah, I remember this. The argument was that the, the murderer was shocked that Spencer was gay. Yeah. Um, that it, was, what, seven years ago? Well, and the fact... And, oh, sorry. Well, well no, I was simply going to say, you know, it doesn't get invoked that often but it's it's an absolute slap in the face that this law is still on the books in all but 12 states and that it even has the option of being used Mm -hmm. well no and the thing is is that you know there are 
uh, many, many trans women that are killed every year in these types of attacks. And so, you know, this is used, like you said, Texas being a, a prime example of it, but this is being used in cases where they're trying to justify uh, murder uh, in order to uh, not to not face jail time. And so it's absolutely uh, befuddling to me why it's even still a, a recognizable defense. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I think that the the federal government really taking a stand on it and also, you know, I mean, obviously banning it as a defense is huge for the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. you know, and especially with uh, specifically with trans people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I'm, uh, I'm really excited to see where Senate Bill 704 ends up. I think because there isn't a formal opposition, it will be something that passes in Oregon. Thank God. Yes. Which great. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Salty's Pet Supply, locally owned and operated since 2005. Located in the heart of North Portland's Mississippi neighborhood, Salty's Pet Supply provides an array of food, treats, and toys to local dogs and cats, and small animals. For in-person shopping, you can visit Salty's at 4039 North Mississippi Ave. And for socially distanced shopping, you can go to saltyspetsupply.com for online orders with the choice of curbside pickup or local home delivery. Salty's Pet Supply aims to keep you and your pets safe and healthy during this pandemic. And we are back at X-Ray in the Morning News with Femmes. Uh, You're listening to KXRY FM at KXRY Portland and at 107.1 and 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. If you would like to check us out later, we are also podcasted, so you can listen to all the back episodes of X-Ray in the Morning. Uh, So we got a quick text in that I want to address. So we don't have news with my dad today because today is International Women's Day, uh, and X-Ray is having a 12-hour teach-in about women, issues that women and femmes are facing here in Oregon and nationwide. It's called Amplify Women. Um, But also, I do want to address, X-Ray has parted ways with Jeff uh, Jefferson Smith, so he will no longer be doing news with my dad on Mondays and Thursdays. You're just going to have to deal with us, myself, Carly Quadros, Melinda Carroll, uh, (laughs) Kira Lindenberg, but I promise... We are very, very lovable. So <laughs> stay around, stick, stick around, listen to us talk about news. We will still be focusing on local news for all of you Oregon local and state junkies out there. Um, where do you guys want to go next? What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk well, about Andrew Cuomo? We sh- I think we sh- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Andrew Cuomo is still refusing to resign after calls from New York City's Senate Majority Leader. Uh, on Sunday, State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins called for the resignation of New York Governor Cuomo. Over the weekend, a fourth woman, former policy and operations aide Anna Liss, accused Cuomo of acting inappropriately toward her. Liss is the third former staffer to come forward with details of Cuomo's harassment. Other state lawmakers and officials from both parties expressed their support of Stuart Cousins' position. Cuomo insisted on Sunday that he would not be leaving office, quote, I'm not going to resign because of the allegations, end quote. Cuomo is also embroiled in another scandal, which the governor's office has attempted to hide the true number of COVID deaths in New York nursing homes. In fact, there were several thousand more deaths than previously reported. So we talked about this a lot uh, last time I was on air with Julia Oppenheimer, um, and we really mostly talked about sexual harassment in the workplace and accountability and things like that. Um, But another thing I was thinking after that discussion was about this nursing home scandal, Um, because I think in many ways that's also a gendered issue. Care workers are disproportionately women of color. Mm -hmm. Residents in nursing homes are more likely to be women and non-professional caretakers, family and people that come into the nursing homes, again, are more likely to be women. And so by requiring these nursing homes to readmit uh, residents who are hospitalized due to COVID-19 was putting all of those women at risk, all of these these working women of color mm-hmm. at risk. And I feel like that's something that needs to be underscored is that this negligence and cover up is affecting really, really vulnerable populations. No, that's and I agree. A really good point, Carly. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, and I agree. I actually work with Multnomah County in the isolation shelters um, for the homeless uh I, uh, the homeless voluntarily isolation shelters for people with COVID-19. And, uh, and you're right. Like, I, I feel like, you know, the, the poor and the marginalized are at more risk uh, simply because of the fact that they don't have the same kind of health care. And so within this, uh, within the, the nursing industry uh, in general and, and caretaking in general, uh, you don't have the same amount of health care as, other folks and a lot of times those people are working part-time they don't have health care at all and so uh, you know within uh the covid there's a lot of uh there's a lot of long haulers out there that are are experience not even just you know the deaths and and that type of thing but that are experiencing long-term symptoms of covid for months and months and months and so and that makes it of course a challenge to you know work uh and so that's shocking to me, but uh, that he would cover up the deaths. But there's also within that covering up deaths, there's probably a lot of sickness he's covering up as well. Um, but it kind of is on par with somebody that won't resign because uh, of harassment charges. I mean, just as far as like yeah. a general yeah. personality trait. Can I listen? International Women's Day. I love that we're having this cohort of women. I'm going to assume that this is a safe space, and I have to ask <laughs> you guys something. That <laughs> I'm, I'm making it a safe circle. I have to ask you guys something because I feel like I have a really unpopular opinion on this situation. Um, and I can't figure out what my opposition is to it. So, so the number, you know, this story keeps coming up on all the different news channels. 
that Cuomo is, you know, he's not going to resign because he says he doesn't want to resign based on allegations, you know. And there's part of me that's like, why are we making such a big deal out of this? And I, I know that that's not how I should be reacting. Are you and talking I, about why are we making such a big deal about the inappropriate behavior? Right. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and not necessarily. I understand why sexual harassment is a really big deal. But I, there's part of me that's like, I kind of hope he doesn't resign. And I can't. I think the reason I think that it's dawning on me that the reason is because it seems that Democrats and, and I just I want your guys' opinion on this. It seems that Democrats are willing to hold their politicians to a much higher standard than oh, yeah. Republicans are, right? Mm-hmm. So we are willing to say there are allegations of sexual harassment. And, and by no means, like, I'm not excusing his behavior, but this is by no means the worst sexual harassment we have seen from politicians in the last decade, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we are willing to say we want our politicians to step down because they're inappropriate, because they, you know, they, they don't serve our society. And Republicans are willing to put a man into the White House who has openly (laughs) expressed that he would like to grab women by the genitals. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is this fear in me that if we, you know, are are willing, I don't want to say willing, but if, if we're... You know what I mean? Like, help me out here. I mean, I, I get, what I get what you're, I get what you're talking I'm about. I'm someone worse is going to come in and fill the void. Well, you know, this is the thing: is that as as uh, I'm going to say Democrats in general, but as leftist folks, uh, what happens is the the right becomes more and more uh, brazen in their in their complete disregard for anything. Uh, and so therefore, as a reaction, what we do is we start to fine tune our reactions to things and become I, I feel like not overreactive, but like I get what you're saying with that. Uh, but this is the thing is that is it possible to have a world where people just don't get harassed at work? Mm-hmm. Like, right. like, I mean, I understand like where you're coming from, but this is the thing is that within this, within these allegations, you also have the sub allegation that he was also covering up deaths. And so, although it seems like minor behavior, the minor behavior is I'm going to push your boundaries and see where your boundaries mm-hmm. lie so yeah. I can run over you. And then I'm going to get away with other behavior because because I'm getting away with this behavior and it's, it's, and it's, and I, I don't mean to be like, you know, yes, all men or whatever, but, um, but <laughs> yeah. at the same time, um, a lot of that is, it, and it's not male behavior, it's power behavior. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's very it's much the behavior of somebody that has, uh, a, a power differential issue, uh, that wants to use their power in ways that control other people. And the way to control other people is to make them feel uncomfortable and then make them feel um, make them feel like they have to be okay with being uncomfortable to have this other thing that they want, whatever the apple is, right? And so mm-hmm. and so that's the thing is that the the consistency in the behavior is that it's it's expressing itself in several different areas. Mm-hmm. That's so well stated, Belinda. I really, really yeah. agree with you. And I th- I think 
if I could boil it down for me, it's just that I don't want to constantly be choosing between the lesser of two evils. I don't want no, to me be either. excused <laughs> like choosing I the sexual. Totally that clear. I'm, I'm not like pro Andrew Cuomo. I'm no, just no, I get you saying. Whoever yeah. comes in next. Yeah, but it's just I don't want to be choosing the sexual harassment that's less humiliating. You know. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that I mean, but that's the thing with with and as women because it's International Women's Day. Um, as women, I feel like a lot of times, and I have definitely been in m- many abusive, beha- abusive situations that I had to get myself out of. And that's the thing, is that as women, we are at a, at a point, uh, and, it's been, and it's getting better, and it, you know, but it's been this way historically, uh, that we expect harassment. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't right. know any women that have ever, ever... Uh, not had an instance or 90,000 instances of, <laughs> of various types of harassment. And so, it, you know, it's, so it's, 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 it's kind of just accepted within, and it's almost like internalizing our own abuse. Do you know what I mean? Because, Oh yeah, absolutely. Because we kind of like go, Oh, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. He just, and then whatever follows that. So it's like, but but that's the thing is that is that I think that the the standard comes from and yes you can say like okay the right is like you know all of that with with the other guy that we don't like anymore um, or we never liked but uh, uh, but at the same time um, we have to understand that we're setting a standard and that standard creates a situation where people are held accountable for their actions. And so if we continue to do that, the idea is, is that it will become intolerable for those things to be normalized. Yeah. And, and I guess you're right. I mean, I guess that's how any social progress is made. And we're going to go through an ugly period uh, where there may be some backlash and we may end up with somebody as, you know, who, who has committed worse sexual harassment or, or has more issues with power uh, as the governor of New York. But I think you're right that, you know, the bar has to continue to be raised just like it was with uh, racial justice and, and just as it has been with uh, gender equality. And it's going to be every time we raise the bar a little bit, it's going to quiver. It's going to it's going to go through a rough patch, but we're going to continue decade after decade and uh uh, politician after politician to raise our standards to a place where uh, equality starts to shine and, and we start to be able to hold people accountable for their actions as a norm instead of as an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Speaking of harassment in the workplace, I found this story. Um, California has proposed a bill to limit non-disclosure agreements. Mm. The bill was introduced by California State Senator Connie Leva. Recent movements like Hashtag Me Too and Black Lives Matter have shown how non-disclosure agreements are often used to provide corporate cover for illegal and prejudiced behavior. Sweeping NDAs, which have become all but the norm in major tech companies, prevent victims from speaking out about discrimination. Some even bar victims from speaking about what happened to their spouses. 
This new legislation would protect employees who publicly discuss work issues related to race, gender, age, disability, and religion. It would also expand a 2018 bill, also sponsored by Senator Leva, which affirmed workers' ability to speak out about sexual harassment without fear of retribution. This bill would be the first of its kind. See, I find that interesting because uh, as a, a marginalized group in several areas, um, I feel like uh, I feel like that is true. I feel like that there is a there is a it's a system of complacency, right? It's the same thing as as the as the harassment thing. It's like there's a system of complacency that happens within abuse where you don't talk about the abuse. Otherwise, you are opening yourself up to the retribution of the person that abused you and you're opening yourself up to more abuse. And I feel like that non-disclosure agreements are kind of the same thing because you, it takes away your voice, right? It takes away your, your power to talk about it. And it also gives the abuser the power still, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a valid thing to limit. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that, non-disclosure agreements were ever allowed to incorporate uh, harassment and inequality in the workplace. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that does not serve the worker, but it's clearly something that we all have just put up with because we didn't have a choice because the, the organization, the, the large companies have had the power for so long. Um, and, I guess this ties into the conversation we were just having of, of, you know, it takes some time and, and things are quivery for a little bit, but we get to the place where, where the norms are starting to change. And I think this is one of those situations where um, we're no longer as a society and as workers going to accept that companies give us these non-disclosure agreements in order for us to have a job and be able to put food on the table. We have to sign something that says, we can't talk about prejudice at the workplace. We can't talk about how we're getting paid less because, you know, of, of some inequality in the system. Well, yes. And the thing is, is that it's it's a matter of protecting uh, the institution mm-hmm. of institutions. Do you know what I mean? So like uh, 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 Meghan Markle did the interview with Harry yesterday with Oprah. And oh, uh, I missed that. Oh, yeah. So Oprah just interviewed Harry and Meghan about what happened within the royal family that made them leave. And so it's a fascinating interview. Uh, But one of the things she talks about is that she was actually uh, to the point of being suicidal at one point. And she went to the royal institution and said, hey, I'm experiencing all these things because she's experiencing racism. And people are talking about, like, what if her what if her baby's skin is too dark and like things like that. And so she was she was. Uh, to the point of suicide and so she was like I have to talk about this or I'm going to do it so I need to you know see somebody and see a therapist and like whatever and they were like no you can't do that because it will look bad to the institution if you do that and so the most British thing I've ever heard (laughs) yeah but the thing is it happens here but it's with corporations right because corporations are people and so uh and so that's the thing is that within protecting our power systems and this whole show is about protecting power systems, I think. <laughs> but protecting yeah, power yeah. systems, <laughs> right, Not is always. is uh, is that we we silence the abused in order to protect the abuser because the abuser holds the purse springs. 
And so the abuser has the financial, the financial control. And so therefore, um, therefore, uh, we can't talk about abuse. And so that's what non-disclosure agreements are, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And there's, um, I was reading up on this story and California's proposed bill to limit non-disclosure agreements. And um, I have a feeling that we're, you know, this hopefully is going to set a precedent and we'll see other states start to follow suit, especially like New York and, and Washington and places where uh, these big tech companies exist. And I just want to point out that uh, it's really important how this bill is written. Um, you know, the, the bill is essentially saying that, that corporations are no longer allowed to make their employees sign agreements that say that they can't talk about, you know, I mean, it, it was, it's so bad that you're not even allowed to talk to your spouse about the harassment. Or, I mean, obviously, I'm sure people do, but, you know, you can get in legal trouble for talking to your spouse about the harassment or about the inequality that you're experiencing at, at some of these large tech companies. Um, and it's important that these bills be written in a way that protect the speaker right because just like just like any other bill that goes forward i I wish that i wish that there was more there was more transparency and people were that we were able to see more clearly how these bills are written um because the, the way that the california bill is written is that you your identity is protected unless you bring a lawsuit against the company that you worked for. And that's really, really important because if, if your identity is not protected, that might uh, prevent people from bringing lawsuits where they're actually justified. So, the, you know, this this is just another example, I think, of uh, where it's, it's important for us to pay attention to the language of the law because if we are not involved, it, it, it reminds me very much of, of the way that like the cannabis industry is coming forth. Uh, if, if we're not involved in the writing of these laws and these bills, then it's very easy for them to get written by politicians in ways that make it sound like it's uh, benefiting us, but really isn't. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely agree with that. And we here at X-Ray in the Morning love getting in the weeds. I've been <laughs> doing work here. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, it's good. And I think it's especially essential when we talk about local politics. I've been doing work here uh, looking into our own legislative session. And, like, this information is available online. It's very difficult to parse through because the Oregon legislature's website was designed in the days of yore um, <laughs> it's very difficult to it's navigate. html it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like dancing babies and <laughs> yeah 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 but um that's why we're here that is why we do what we do at x-ray to make those like weedy nitty-gritty uh details of these stories so we can bring them to you in ways that are clear understandable digestible um and so you can actually engage with what's going on in your community yeah, yeah, because that's what community engagement looks like. It's it's not just being outraged at stories. It's it's getting into the nitty gritty. It's it's knowing the language of the law and making sure that the way that our that it's by the people for the people, you know, and and not just politics is something that happens to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's that's a good underline to why we need various voices in our political system because for 200 plus years uh 
white men were the only people making our laws. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the, the things that we're changing now are things that were written into the law. And now we're realizing how unequitable that system is. And changing that system is extremely important. But the only way you can change the system is to talk to the people who the system affects and make sure that those laws are beneficial to them. And so, amen. yeah, so, I mean, we're changing everything now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get <laughs> up. And, you know, but the world's doing it, you know, like we have we have a lot of stuff going on right now that uh that is happening worldwide because I mean, because of the pandemic and everything like that, of course, that's the activating event. But, um, but you were talking about, uh, we were talking about, um, uh, Northern Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get into that. So, uh, the U S is trying to undermine the Kurdish fight for autonomy. So this is, a very, very complicated situation that's been going on uh, for a while, but I'm going to try to break it down for you. Basically, Rojava is an autonomous region in northern Syria on the border of Turkey. It's mostly home to ethnic Kurds who have been fighting the presence of ISIS and hostile groups from Turkey. Since 2012, Rojava has been the center of a leftist revolution based on the principles of gender equality, democracy, and social ecology. During the Obama years, the Kurds were also allied with the United States in their fight against ISIS. However, when Trump was in charge, he and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo pulled U.S. troops from the Turkish border, prompting a really brutal Turkish attack on the Kurdish homeland. Uh, Last September, though, in a slight reversal, the U.S. sent more troops to aid the Kurds in northern Syria. There was a lot of backlash against Trump pulling the troops out. Mm. Um, But now recently... The U.S. has called on the Kurds to share power with the ri- with rival fol- politicians who did not necessarily believe in this revolutionary Rojava project. The U.S. facilitated talks between the revolutionary Kurds and a much smaller, moderate opposition group. In June, the two groups came to a deal, although it remains unclear how power is actually going to be shared between these two groups. Some see this as Washington trying to appease Turkey, maintain a foothold in Syria, and moderate the Kurds' revolutionary ambitions. So this is a story that I'm really passionate about and have lots of thoughts about, and I thought we should touch on it uh, for International Women's Day because uh, Rojava, as this democratic project, is so essential um, when it comes to their democratic structure. It's uh, based on the writings of Murray Bookchin and other uh, radical leftists, this, these ideas of social ecology. So they're decentralized, direct democracies that are in control. And the idea is that there's 50-50 leadership between men and women, which is something that's like unprecedented everywhere, not just the Middle East. Um, there's also a commitment to uh, keeping ethnic minorities in local councils, and it, they encourage religious freedom for everyone. It's a really interesting and really kind of essential project when we come to like thinking about what communities can actually look like. Um, and so I think right now with this new administration, there's there's a lot of questions about how the United States is either going to support the Kurds. Um, it's not the United States has never really been friendly to re- revolutionary socialist leftist projects in general. Um, but my hope is that they will not try to actively harm the Kurds in their project either, because Rojava is just such an essential 
interesting, powerful project and idea. And I hope that there will be more more projects like that when it comes to direct democracy, when it comes to gender parity, when it comes to acceptance, religious acceptance, racial and ethnic acceptance. Um, and it would be really, really disappointing to see our nation try to moderate or limit that kind of project. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, uh, but <laughs> our, uh, our government has historically done that. So it would be a departure if we did not do that. So uh, I think that we're going to be uh, unraveling a lot of things that Trump uh, has uh, did uh, for a long time. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the new administration will support them in uh, their aims to create a better society because uh, but at the same time we do we do quash that kind of situation a lot so we will see what happens I think it's interesting to keep our eye on this kind of project because uh, you know I think there's a sentiment in the US that we don't need gender equality uh, we don't, we don't need to push gender equality because while well, there's already women who are senators and, you know, who ha- who hold political office and therefore like the fight is over. And uh, if, if you're a woman and you don't get into office, it's not because of gender inequality. It's because you like didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, but, you know, if we're really paying attention to uh, what Syria is trying to do and, and they're trying to make this very uh, deliberate move towards gender equality and towards social ecology, and the U.S. is taking actions to actively, uh, you know, put a stopper in that because the reality is that that doesn't really serve us, right? I mean, if, if we want to have a hand in other countries' politics, it help, it, it's much more beneficial to us to keep them uh, separated and to keep them, you know, to keep the patriarchy in place. Uh, so, you know, it's, it'll be really interesting to keep our eye on this because, it exposes a lot of the actual uh, motivations that the U.S. government has. Mm -hmm. There is so much more in this story that I want to get into, but unfortunately, we're going to have to go to another break. After the break, we're going to be joined by Callie Ladd, Executive Director of Kairos PDX. 